Well, if you're keeping track, this is week number three in a message series that I'm calling Going the Right Way in a Wrong Way World. Uh, we've been pretty much in the book of Matthew this year. We've sidetracked a few times, but we've gotten to the point where we ended a study, a rather long study on the Beatitudes. And as I was looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, I realized that it was basically Jesus saying how living in his kingdom, the kingdom that he proclaimed in chapter 4, would be something different than the kingdoms that they've lived in in the world. So he started by looking at how Jesus says we, we should start everything that we do. If we're going to live the right way in this new world that's coming, we need to glorify God first. And then the next week I talked about the law, and the law was a big deal to the Jewish people, and how we need to follow that law in spirit, and not just the letter of the law. And then last week, Vernon was here, and he stepped into the pulpit for me, and he gave a nice message that encouraged us to follow Jesus Christ. And I appreciate that, Vernon. You uh, gave me some time to spend with my family as my grandchildren and my daughter was visiting, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. We're going to pick back up, though, this week in going the right way in a wrong way world. And this week's message is called People-Pleasing. It's taken from the passage that Mike read earlier. Uh, it's from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. If you want to open your Bibles there, you might want to follow along in just a couple of minutes. In order to understand what I'm talking about when I say people-pleasing, um, it would help you to know what the definition of that is, just a little bit. Now, when you talk about people-pleasing, you get a guy who looks like this a lot. He frowns a lot, never very happy, always worried. Worried about what other people are going to think. What if I say no? Will they reject me? What if I make them mad? Will there be a problem with that? Will there be a fight about that? How will they think about me? What will they say? Constantly worried about that. It's, it's actually something that you can get treatment for. This is the signs and symptoms of people-pleasing. But what I'm talking about today is not quite that extreme. What I'm talking about today is something that most of us have felt the pressure of. Um, illustrate it here for just a second. Uh, guys, you remember when you first met your in-laws? Was there a little bit of a desire there to make a good impression? Or maybe those of us that uh, have interviewed for jobs before. I can remember sitting across the table from a guy who was a little older than me. He was obviously very well educated. He was wearing a suit that probably cost more than I make in a year. And I'm supposed to impress him. Or another illustration that many of us have lived with, that first date. When you're standing there on the porch and you're just about to ring the doorbell, or ladies, maybe you're in the living room hoping he'll ring the doorbell soon. We want to make a good impression, don't we? That's really what this is all about, is, is somehow making a good impression on another person. Or maybe if we're honest, controlling that impression. We want them to see us as someone who gets along. Uh, we never want to be seen as somebody who's making too big a fuss. Sometimes we 
want that other person to be impressed in such a way that they'll make a fuss about us. Sometimes we want to control the impression that other people have so that they can be an asset to us. Would it surprise you to hear that Jesus thinks that this might be okay? In fact, Jesus says in the passage we're looking at today that it is okay to make a good impression. Making a good impression is okay if the one you want to impress is God. It's an interesting passage this morning. He uses three illustrations to demonstrate that making a good impression, having the goal of being impressive, as long as it's God you're impressing, is a good idea. He gives three illustrations and then he gives us the right way and the wrong way to be impressive. He starts out with giving. Now, just to be clear here, we're actually talking about almsgiving here. This is not a passage on a church member's commitment to supporting the church through the tithes and offerings. Uh, the concept that Jesus is talking about when he says, when you give to the needy, he's talking about someone who needs help. And the wrong way to do that, according to Jesus, is to attract attention. In the second verse there, he actually says, don't blow a trumpet. Now, I don't know if it's real or not, but the picture that he's giving is that the rich people in Jerusalem would actually hire a brass band to follow them around town, and every time they gave money to a poor person, they would blow a long blast and attract everybody's attention so that all the people in the marketplace or on the street where they were would be looking. It was to attract attention to themselves so that they could enhance their reputation. It was a way to convince the rest of the world that you were so successful and so rich that you had extra money that you could give to this guy who has done nothing for you. And, by implication, doesn't deserve it. I deserve it. They don't, but aren't I good? And Jesus says, if you're doing that to be seen by people, that's all you're going to get. He gives us the right ways to do this, to, to give to the needy, to do our works of righteousness. He says, if we're doing it for other, any other reason than to meet a need, then we're doing it for the wrong reason. When we see someone who has a need and we want to meet that, then we're doing it for the right reason. Now, some of us have had some challenges understanding how to know if the need is legitimate. Now, I don't know if this is what a pastor or a preacher is supposed to do, but I'm going to jump out of the Bible for a minute and go back to the TV show, The Waltons. Anybody here remember that show? The Waltons back in the 70s uh, during the Depression. Uh, in one of the episodes, there was a family down the road that was well-to-do. They had a lot of money. And they were living in a big house, and they had nice clothes. But the kids in the family knew that that family was running out of money. And the way they knew was the shoes. The people's shoes weren't well kept anymore. 
Now, from time to time, I drive down to the city with my wife or my family, and when you get into Oklahoma City, you can, can't pull off the interstate anywhere without having a panhandler on every corner with that little sign that says, uh, need help, or I have 17 kids, uh, can you help me? Things like that. And I used to just drive past them. But then I had to study these passages, and now I realize maybe that's not right. So I started looking at how they're dressed. And when those guys are standing on that corner with $90 Nike shoes, maybe my money can go someplace better. But I remember the time we pulled off of an interstate. This was in a different state, and there was a guy sitting on the ground, leaning up against a signpost with that sign, need help. And he didn't even look up. And we pulled off the road and went into McDonald's or Hardee's or someplace like that, and we bought a, a meal number one. You know, we didn't pay attention to what it was. Just give me number one. And we went back and hand-delivered that meal to that guy because he looked like he looked like he was starving to death. And I will give you one other little way to know if a panhandler really has a need. If you're enjoying the odor, they can probably pay their own way. Because really needy people, they're not pleasant to smell. And there are people like that in our communities. And if we see those people and we help them out in a nice, quiet way as a sacrifice of kindness, not just to get the people's attention and be able to brag about what we've done, then we're impressing God and not the people around us. Giving is just the first illustration Jesus used. He talked about praying as well. He talked about the wrong way to pray, which was the way that uh, some of the Jews were praying. They were praying to impress. They would stand up in the synagogue and pray great speeches. And the idea was, look at me, see what a good public speaker I am? Or they were praying to attract attention on the street corners so that people could see how spiritual and godly they were, that they can't even walk across the street without first talking to God about it. That's not what he's commending here. He's got a different way for his people to pray. This is actually three points that he makes in the passage that Mike read earlier. He talks about praying secretly. He talks about going into your room is the way the English Standard Version uses it. The old King James says closet. And I really like that word in this circumstance because the word actually is would be better translated inner room. It's a room that's not connected to the outside wall of your house. And in most cases, in a lot of their homes, that would only be the broom closet. It would be the only space in their house that didn't have a window to the outside where somebody might walk by and hear your prayers. So go someplace secret. And then he talks about praying simply. And he talks about how the Gentiles add words to words and they make big, long, verbose sentences because they think they will be heard based on the multipl multiplying of their words. And then he says something that's very interesting to me. He says, so then, pray like this. And then he gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. It's not formatted that way in any English Bible that I've seen, but it could actually be a bullet point list. Very simple, quick conversations with God. Not fancy, polished speeches. Now, he's not criticizing memorized prayers, and he's not criticizing uh, pre-prepared prayers because at the other end of his ministry, right before he dies, he's on his way to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 11, and he's asked to teach on prayer. And in that case, he says, when you pray, say. And then he gives exactly the same list. So he endorses simple prayers, even if you need a little help with your simple prayers. And then finally, he talks about praying sympathetically because those last two verses, 14 and 15, have to be attached to the Lord's Prayer. He says, so when, if you forgive someone their trespass, did you notice it's a different word than he said in the prayer, forgives our debts? Trespass is an interesting Greek word. Greek words are, are often uh, in flux. They evolve a little bit. This word originally was used for an archer who would draw back his bow, let the arrow fly, and the arrow would land either to the left or to the right of the target. And sometimes that was intentional to where they would miss the target on purpose. And the word began to be used by the Jews as people who have done something harmful to you. They didn't come through on a promise. They didn't pay a bill. They stole something from you. It's something that misses the mark that God has set or missed the mark that they had committed to. And if we're not willing to forgive that, then Jesus says, then your heavenly Father won't forgive you. And when we stop and think about that, we realize that's actually a moral statement. It would be immoral for God to forgive someone who was not willing to forgive others. So the right ways to pray that Jesus is giving to us today is secretly, simply, and sympathetically. One last illustration is fasting. Fasting is something that we don't do much in the United States. Much to my chagrin sometimes. Um, it's something that we've also kind of lost the concept of. For most of us, when we say fasting, we think it's just of food. In some Christian traditions on Ash Wednesday, they make a commitment to give up something until Easter, the 40 days leading up to Easter. And it used to be that they would give up beef. And so for 40 days during Lent, they would only eat fish. But it can be anything. In our passage, Jesus talks about while you're fasting, go ahead and put oil on your head. And apparently, in some cases, part of their fasting was not to take physical care of your appearance. In other words, ladies, they didn't put their makeup on. Also, they would use that same oil as a what we would call sunscreen. And so what they were doing was they were arranging it so that they looked terrible. And Jesus is saying that the wrong way to fast is so that people think you're somehow more spiritual. 
And I can picture this. I, I've, I've actually seen uh, a little bit of this done. I don't know that it was done in the wrong way, but I watched this happen one time where a person walked into a room and found the first chair they could sit in, and when they sat down, they just sighed. <sighs> and the whole room knew that they were doing it. Uh, and when somebody said, are you okay? He says, no, I'm just in the middle of a really long fast. Are you fasting for God or are you fasting so that we'll think you're more spiritual than us? But the flip side of that is not to fast in such a way that you're claiming that you fixed it. Because most of the time you fast over a particular issue. And if you make sure everybody knows you're fasting over that particular issue, then if God decides to intervene on that, then somehow you look special because you got God to do something other people couldn't get him to do. And you take credit for fixing it. Jesus is saying these are the wrong ways to fast. The right ways to fast are sacrificially. Sacrificial over a need. And it could be almost anything. Uh, you might have a health issue. Um, cancer. Lord, I have cancer and I don't know whether to take radiation or chemo or, or do nothing or is it worth... I don't know the answers, God. Until I get an answer on Wednesday night, I'm not going to eat supper and I'm not going to eat all day Thursday until Thursday night. That's the way the Jews did it. Their day started in the evening when the sun went down, and so they would skip the evening meal. And then they would not eat all the next day until the sun went down, they'd get the next meal. Now, Jerry Falwell pointed out that that's a brilliant way to fast, because if you do it that way, you only have to miss two meals. Breakfast and lunch. Just a little thought. We might fast over other things. We might fast over uh, a family member who has uh, financial issues. Maybe they need a job. So, Lord, one day a week I'm going to fast uh, and take that extra time to pray that you'll give this person a job. Might be a community issue. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say this, okay? I have noticed that there is not a Christian leader in our country that has called our churches to fast and pray over the social distancing issues. I'm just pointing it out. People can do what they want to with that. But it seems to me like that might be an appropriate response to the crisis that we're having right now. Father, one day a week, I'm not going to eat I'm going to demonstrate to you that I believe this is important. But he does point out, Jesus does point out that when we do fast, we need to do it discreetly. Because we need to make sure that if Jesus does decide to act on our fasting, that he gets the credit, not us. Now, wouldn't it be great if Jesus had given us a summary of all of this that we could simply apply to our lives? As a matter of fact, he did. Uh, you might notice that I skipped verse 1. He gave it before he gave the illustrations. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then... You will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven.
We tend to read some of our verses too fast. Do you realize that's a promise? Now, we catch those nice promises, don't we? You know, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. We catch those promises quickly, but this is a promise too. If you do your acts of righteousness, so just so other people can see you and think good about you, God is not going to honor that. But the flip side is also true. If you do your spiritual disciplines, that's another way to say acts of righteousness, things like prayer and Bible reading and going to worship and sharing your faith. If you do those things so that God will see it, He will. What He's promising here is that when we do our acts of righteousness or our spiritual disciplines, whichever you like, He's promising we'll be successful. The key is you can't have it both ways. You can't do both. So if we're going to apply what Jesus is saying today, our primary goal to take away from this is to move from people-pleasing to God-pleasing. That's an attitude change that we need to have. How do we do that? People say, yeah, Pastor, that's a great statement. You worked hard to bring that down to the fewest number of words and make it memorable, but how? I'm going to give you one tip. There may be others. Some of you may have ideas, but one tip. Whatever it is you're doing, whether you're getting up early to have a devotional time, or you're meeting with someone who's not a believer and you're explaining your faith, or you're praying for people who have needs, ask yourself one question. Would I do this if nobody knew it? And if you can't say yes, then you have room to move from people-pleasing to God-pleasing. And you also have a promise. You have the promise that when you make that move and God is the only one you're interested in impressing with your spiritual disciplines, He will notice. You may have been giving to this church for decades. Given until it hurts and nobody's ever said thank you. God knows and God will reward you may have been praying for people in this congregation, in this community, for years. And nobody's ever acknowledged it. God will. God knows. God sees what you do in secret. And He will reward you. That promise is made three times in this passage. You may have sacrificed your time, your talent, your relationships, your reputation for the kingdom of God, and you have no idea if it's making any difference at all in, any, in anybody's life anywhere. God knows. And God doesn't care how much difference it makes. God knows that you set out to impress Him and not others. And when we make the change from impressing people to impressing God, 
we've made another step towards going the right way in a wrong way world. Let's close in prayer. Father, some of these messages can be very challenging. Sometimes when we read these words that you've recorded for us and we understand them, we look at ourselves and we see, wow, I haven't done so well. We thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness and that each day your mercies are new and we can start over. In some cases, we don't know how we're doing. We're thankful that we're standing before a merciful, gracious King, Lord, God, who is interested in seeing us grow to become what you've called us to be. And Father, for the people in this room that have for years sought to impress you over the people in their life and sought to do the things that you've called us to do, I ask you, remind them that when it seems difficult, you're still watching. And the day is going to come when you're going to remember their works of righteousness and reward. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.